This, this is the second, second Story Podcast. Welcome back to the Second Story Podcast. I'm Liv Oath. This week, I've been thinking about what psychologists call flashbulb memories. Essentially, these are snapshots in time that capture details that ordinary memories leave behind. They're common in especially momentous or consequential moments in a person's life, like how people could remember right where they were when John F. Kennedy was assassinated. But real life isn't a picture. Outside the snapshot, the world keeps turning. This week on the Second Story Podcast, we're bringing you a story about moments captured in time forever and the real life outside the frame of the photo. Second Story is proud to present Janan Mohajir. There is a picture of me that I love. I'm about 13, my bushy 90s hair pulled half up in a scrunchie, my heather gray sweater tied around my waist. I'm sitting on the slope of a mountain. Ahead of me is a valley and a winding road on lush green mountainside. My body facing away from the camera taking in the view and my face turned to look back for just a moment. That moment of pure childhood joy captured by my cousin Hassan who had wanted to show me his favorite view of his hometown. Growing up as an Indian in the Middle East meant that I had many different homelands. Qatar was the home where I grew up. India was the land of my cultural heritage and where my parents would take me and my brother back every summer for our vacation. Most of my extended family lived in the South Indian city of Madras, where my parents had grown up. Being near the equator, Madras had only two seasons, hot and hotter. (laughs) But relief was a few hours away in the mountains where the weather was cooler and the views would remind you of Eden. Luckily for me, my aunt lived there, so we made our way there every summer. The memories of that day are vague because we had spent so many summer afternoons there. But I do remember that Hassan and I had snuck away from our annoying little brothers. We both had one each. And I had hiked through the forest in sandals, slipping on wet eucalyptus leaves until we came to a hole in the fence. On the other side of the fence were emerald mountains, all government property with restricted access to the public. I think this is where the boar escaped, Hassan said. A wild boar had wandered through their backyard and there was much talk amongst the neighbors. I felt a ball of nervousness and excitement in the pit of my stomach. What do we do if we see the boar, I asked. Let's hope we don't see him, he said. Hassan was six months older than me and we were as thick as thieves. He was the calmest boy I had ever met. And more importantly, he put up with my horribly bossy attitude. We climbed through the fence and then hiked up the emerald slope. I decided to give my tattered feet a break and I sat on one of the rocks. I faced the valley and took a deep breath. I turned back toward Hassan and flashed a smile. There we were, watching the world turn below us and nothing else mattered. I have carried that picture with me for more than 20 years. My reminder of a moment of simple pleasure But many moments after and before then did not carry that simplicity. A year before that picture was taken, we received news that Saddam Hussein had invaded Kuwait. 
My father shortened his trip that year, leaving my mother, brother, and I to enjoy a few more weeks of summer while he figured out if it was safe for us to return. If your father must stay in Qatar, then we are all going to stay with him, my mother had said. Much to the shock of her family, she packed us up and we returned home just as the refugees from Kuwait were filling the streets of our city. Although Qatar was far enough from Kuwait, hysteria about Saddam's chemical weapons was everywhere. As the war continued, we noticed changes in our life. Our schools closed, the local TV station was shut down and now only broadcasted CNN. Day and night, all we would see were bright red and orange flames of a banner with the words war in the Gulf flashing on the bottom of our screen. One day I walked into my parents' bedroom and I noticed that my dad was covering the edges of the windows with duct tape. Why are you doing that? I asked. I'm trying to close all the gaps in the windows, my dad responded. But why? I asked again. Just in case it's true that Saddam has any uh, chemicals, he responded, trying to see if I understood the meaning of what he was implying while looking around to make sure that my little brother didn't overhear. But don't we need gas masks if that happens, I said. I remembered some of the older kids at school talking about gas masks, and I wondered why we didn't have any. We are Indian, he said. There are too many of us for everyone to get gas masks. So who gets them, I asked, alarm spreading in my cheeks. Americans, British, French, you have to be from one of those countries to get a gas mask from your embassy. India does not have enough money to give all of its citizens gas masks. And with that, he turned around and continued to close the gaps. It was the first time I realized that my life was worth less than another life because of where I was born and because of the color of my skin. A couple of years after the war was over, my parents' application for an American green card was approved. And for the second time in their adult lives, they made the difficult decision to move, to once again be foreigners in a new adopted homeland to perhaps ensure that their children would never be denied gas masks or opportunities again. When I was 15, I arrived in America, and settling into suburban high school was challenging. Thankfully, we arrived in early June, so I had all summer to fix my accent before school started. My American cousins were relentless and making fun of my part Indian, part British pronunciation of words. And they were really into trilogy movies, so that's how I became American, by watching endless summer viewings of Star Wars and Indiana Jones. And my cousin's grandmother was a huge fan of The Price is Right, so I became really good at guessing prices for grocery store items. By the time I started college, I had lost all traces of being foreign. My hair was brown and my skin was tan enough to confuse anyone looking to put me in a box. On the day I moved into my dorm room, I unpacked some pictures and some cards to put above my headboard. I found that picture of me on the mountain and taped it up on the wall. I wasn't particularly religious at the time, but I couldn't stop the questions inside my head. Is the life of one less than the life of another? What are our obligations to community, to each other? Why do I keep thinking about these questions instead of partying it up? 
hey, do you want to come to the Muslim lecture about women? My friend Ruhi had been trying to get me to come to the Muslim student group all year, and I had resisted all year. Eh, not really, I said. Well, okay, can you just come to help clean up? We need volunteers. <laughs> she knew I would be guilted into coming, and I did. When I walked back to my dorm after that lecture that night, I felt this great surge inside me, as if the questions I had been asking were bubbling to find a way out. I wandered through campus with my headphones blasting Metallica and Guns N' Roses and U2, trying to figure out who I was. We were all trying to figure that out. I found the only scarf I had brought from home, a midnight blue with scalloped edge and beaded trim, way too fancy to wear with my sweats, but it's all I had with me. I pulled my brown hair back into a knot and covered my hair with a scarf. It took several tries of wrapping and unwrapping the fabric until it sat just right. And then for the first time in a really long time, I prayed. In that moment, I recognized myself in that picture above my headboard, and nothing else mattered. By my senior year, I had fully embraced my Muslimness and my student activism. It was a bright September morning, and I was really excited for the beginning of school. I had been asked to speak to a class full of freshman students about why I did service learning as a leader and why I was inspired to do that as a Muslim. I was walking across the cafeteria when I saw the news flashing on every TV screen. A plane had just crashed into the World Trade Center. I stopped for a minute and then kept walking as I didn't want to be late for my presentation. When I arrived in class, we learned that a second plane had crashed into the buildings. And I knew in that moment, everything had just changed. One student raised his hand and asked, why do Muslims hate Americans? And another student raised his hand and asked, why does everyone think Muslim Americans did this? We had nothing to do with this crime. I didn't have the words or the skills to make that conversation a productive one. I walked back past the cafeteria again, and we all watched in horror as the Twin Towers came crashing down upon us all. And from that moment on, everything mattered. September 11th put a heavy burden on my community. Suddenly, we were all speakers and facilitators. We were all teachers and experts. Every one of us represented the 1.2 billion of us around the world. But there was one thing we could keep saying. Hate is its own religion and has its own followers. I have found myself repeating that line in recent years. In the, in the months after the 2016 national election, my oldest son, Suleiman, came home from his kindergarten class with a series of questions. Is someone going to take me away from school if they find out I'm Muslim? Of course not, honey. School is a safe place, I lied. We all knew schools were no longer safe places in America, or synagogues, or mosques, or nightclubs, or bars, or grocery stores. My friend John says that President Trump doesn't like us. Is that true? I didn't know how to answer that question, but I did know it didn't belong on the playground. A few weeks later, we woke up to news that a synagogue near our home had been vandalized. Its front window smashed and swastika stickers placed on its front doors. 
I knew what we did in that moment would matter. It was Super Bowl Sunday, and my husband and I discussed how to change our plans so we could visit the synagogue before we had went on with our game-related festivities. Suleiman, who was listening nearby, spoke up. Is the man who broke that window gonna break our window too? No, my love, we are safe in our home, I replied. I had jokingly sent texts to my white friends on election night telling them to have hiding places for my children in their attics, and now it felt like maybe we would need them. Why doesn't that man like Jews? I didn't have an answer to that question. If he hates Jews, does he also hate Muslims? I didn't have an answer to that one either, but we did the best we could. What do you think we should do about the synagogue, Suleiman? I asked. Should we go visit them? Well, we can't go without cards, he said. So we made cards with bright rainbows and flowers and messy, perfect kindergarten handwriting that said, I stand with you. There are many stories I do not share with my children about my migration, about my past, my life as an immigrant in this land. Maybe someday I will. But for now, we share the good things. On Fridays, I pick up Suleiman from school at dismissal. We usually chat about our days and spend some time listening to music for our 10-minute ride home. How was your day today, Suleiman? Fine. Can you play some music now? <laughs> Why don't you tell me about your day? It was fine. Can you please play some music now? Sometimes I wonder where he got his bossy attitude from. Karma's a real bitch, y'all. <laughs> hey, mama, can you please play Metallica? Suleiman asked one day. Uh, Metallica? I paused. We had started introducing him to the music we had listened to as teenagers and still loved, but I hadn't realized my husband had introduced him to that quite yet. Yes, it's called Nothing Else Matters, and it's a rock band called Metallica that Baba loves, and it's so, so cool. I know what Metallica is, Suleiman. I rolled my eyes. At seven years old, my son had already gained a proficiency for mansplaining. You know, Metallica was one of my favorite bands when I was a teenager, I said. Oh, well then you should sing it with me, he said. And we did. Nothing else matters. This story was produced by Sydney Ockler, curated by Deb Lewis, directed by Lexi Saunders, and music and sound designed by Jeff Shaler and Jane Longman. The Second Story podcast is produced by me, Libov. Second Story is supported by the MacArthur Fund for Art and Culture at the Richard H. Driehaus Foundation, the Gaylord and Dorothy Donnelly Foundation, a City Arts Grant from the City of Chicago Department of Cultural Affairs and Special Events, our 2018 to 2019 season sponsor, Skadden, Art, Slate, Meager, and Flom, and many generous individuals like you. I'm Liv Oath, and this, this is the Second, Second Story Podcast.